I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. was on a Tuesday and I think uh, a lot of people remember that day. For me, I was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky with the 5th Special Forces Group and we were getting ready for a normal routine into the Middle East. We were simulating a terrorist attack on the United States of America. And it was about 8 in the morning, Fort Campbell time, and the intel sergeant walked in and said, you know, hey, he wrote on the whiteboard, the World Trade Center's been attacked. And we're like, okay, that's kind of a change of our training exercise, you know, a little curveball. So we started sending in requests for information, you know, you know, was this, how was it hit, what was attacked? And about an hour later, the same intel sergeant came in and said, the second World Trade Center's been hit. We're like, okay two iconic financial institutions, the United States of America, and we started generating already these, these uh, requests for information. And it wasn't until about three hours later that then Colonel Mulholland came in and said, no, stop, it's for real. There's a lot of us knew right away who had done it, right? We had been tracking Al-Qaeda, we had been tracking bin Laden and his network. Um, and so by about the 14th of September, we were already getting notified that, you know, some of us and our other teams would be the first ones going in. Luckily, we were already prepared to go into the Middle East. I think Mark and Bob's team, 595, had just gotten back. And on 17 October, almost 19 October, uh, ODA 595 were the first ones in. When we took our, uh, our brief from uh, Colonel Mulholland at the time, now Lieutenant General Mulholland, retired. But uh, our, when we gave our brief to him, we said, Hey, sir, this is our brief. This is how we're going to go in, link up with General Dostum, defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan. And he looked at us and he goes, gotcha. What if you cannot do it in this time frame? And I looked at him and, and so did the intelligence sergeant, Andy. And we said, sir, it doesn't matter. We will adapt and we will win. And if you think about the Doolittle raid, Right, right after Pearl Harbor, you know, a, a brave crew of, of American, you know, airmen on a uh, aircraft carrier that did something that was never done before and penetrate the enemy lines. That's sort of what President Bush wanted too. He wanted America's response. He needed to show the public that we were, you know, going after those that were responsible. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. So on 19 October, uh, Mark and Bob's team 595 came in from the north. 
They came in one CH-47 helicopter and two mission support uh, uh, gunships, some 60s, and they tried to cross the Hindu Kush. It was the highest helicopters have ever flown before. They quickly discovered that you lack oxygen up there and only the pilots had oxygen, so some of the guys went down. So imagine being a Green Beret team given a mission where nobody will believe you'll survive. They don't know when you're coming home. They don't know how long it's gonna take for the other military elements to even come into country. You basically don't know who you're linking up with. We already soon learned that, you know, there was a bounty on each, you know, American's head, dead or alive. The initial link up went well. General Dostum came in and he came in with 30 riders. Now, in any report at all, did it ever say that the Mujahideen were on horseback? Fortunately for uh, 595 is the team leader, Mark Nooch, uh, was, uh, had a rodeo scholarship. He grew up on a ranch. When our team landed by helicopter in remote the mountains of Northern Afghanistan, the main mode of transportation by the local militia that we were working with was on horseback or on foot. The majority of the fighters needed that uh, mobility to get around in that terrain and therefore they were riding horseback. Uh, our team had no choice but to adapt and learn how to ride horses and move around the mountains with them. As a young officer, he studied all the cavalry battles of Gettysburg and the Civil War and Pancho Villa's uh, campaign. And, you know, so he understood basically cavalry maneuver and what it required to kind of, you know, keep a cavalry unit fed and operable and lines of communication and waterways and things like that. So, you know, it wasn't planned that way. It's just what happened. We wanted to verify who the Taliban was. So General Dostum took the team up to uh, another command post location and pointed across the valley and said, there's a Taliban. Okay, how do you know it's the Taliban? And just like in the movie 12 Strong, they basically called him on the radio and said, hey, General Dostum, you wanna have a fight today? And we're so far away, I can't even tell what we're shooting at, what we're hitting. Razan, hey General Dostum. Christ, he's called fucking Taliban. And what we started to learn is there's a culture of how Afghans fight, right? The commanders will call each other and they'll taunt each other. They'll see if somebody maybe wants to switch alliances that day, maybe not. Uh, maybe you have some relatives on the other side and you'll ask for a quick relative exchange. And then you may even get together and have tea and talk about old times. Then you'll go apart and you'll have a battle and one side will win and one side won't. Our team did something pretty unique in that we split down our team into three-man cells. And each three-man cell would be with a different Afghan commander who had between 350 to 750 horsemen. And over those few weeks, we raised an army of over 2,500 horsemen and 500 infantry to attack against uh, Taliban and Al-Qaeda armored and mechanized vehicles.
you got all the Mujahideen commanders and warriors looking like, okay, what are we gonna do now? Are we getting ready to charge? You know, what's the battle plan? What's going on? And Marx tells General Dosum 10 seconds. So General Dosum's about ready to tell his guys, okay, 10 seconds, we gotta charge. And then all of a sudden, the hillside erupts in explosion where the Taliban's at. It just utterly shocks all the Mujahideen fighters. They thought eventually that we were gods of thunder and we could execute lightning bolts at will. You are now clear to engage the moving vehicle. Our team had a different type of mission and it's not really depicted in the movie. Ours was basically to go even further behind the lines and disrupt the Taliban and Al-Qaeda leadership. So the boogeyman in the night. And if you think about, once again, Afghan culture, if you're a warrior and you're a leader of men and you're a coward, your credibility falls and they'll instantly switch sides. You know, your people are foot soldiers, they're just farmers, they're just pressed into service. So we would go and we would kill or capture Taliban leadership, military leadership or Al-Qaeda leadership before the battle that night. And so the next morning when the troops showed up and their leader wouldn't, it was basically PSYOPs 101, right? We wouldn't let them know that we killed them or anything. We just let them start, you know, doubting, you know, the bravery of their commanders and it just took off from there. So the North started to crumble very fast, put Al-Qaeda in the run into Pakistan. I mean, that was it. War's over, right? High five. I remember the day General Petraeus came into Kandahar, it was like, whoa, 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 turn on the war. I've got the 101st Airborne here, right? Uh, General Mattis was there with his Marine um, Recon Regiment unit with his labs and everything, they're like, whoa, whoa, where's the battles? We're here. And it was like, they're gone. The Taliban's decimated. I mean, we've already started training Afghans for an Afghan army, right? And that's when we started to see like, hey, we're gonna go mop up the remnants of Al-Qaeda in this, this uh, mountain set over here. And that became Anaconda. And it was like, well, there's nobody there, sir. There's a bunch of hungry kids in a cave. Um, I mean, if you want to go up there, we'll take you up there. And then that was kind of it. We thought it was uh, initially done. I want to leave you with one thing. That bond that united all of you together with the other parties to form the Northern Alliance and fight against the Taliban that bond must continue. By then, the same group of guys that had served since 2001, the toll started to hit, right? Some started to retire and go take contracting jobs. We lost a lot of friends, a lot of injuries. Uh, guys were going to the schoolhouse to share knowledge. And I myself came to the headquarters of special operations here in Tampa. And I served out my uh, last tour as the senior enlisted advisor to the director of the interagency task force for counterterrorism. And then one day I retired, and that was it. Suddenly you're nobody. You know, I kind of beat around, you know, wondering what I could do. I didn't want to do contracting. A lot of my buddies were starting, you know, clothing companies or kit companies or, you know, I'd see him at SHOT Show standing in a booth with a scope or a gun and I'm like, 
I don't know, right? There's got to be something to this American dream. So I came home and my wife looked at me and says, what now? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Let's go figure it out. So step one's find a mentor, right? They always tell you that. It's the same thing in the military. You know, find a mentor and just learn with them and train with them. It's the same in Kung Fu, right? Find a master and carry the water bucket. So I called a, a friend of mine, uh, John Coco, and John had been a previous generation Green Beret. We had become friends here in Tampa. He had um, become very successful in the business world. My name is John Coco, and I am the president, one of the founders of American Freedom Distillery. So I asked John, you know, hey, I want to start a business. He's like, okay. He's thinking I'm going to hit him up with money. I go, no, I, I just need to learn. He goes, well, I guess we could get together when I get back from my trip. And I'm like, well, where are you going? He goes, Yellowstone. I'm like, Yellowstone. I've never been to Yellowstone. He goes, it's the most beautiful place ever. I said, okay, well, can I come out there with you? I don't have a job. He goes, sure, come along. And so that began this journey of getting back to nature, of once again, fly fishing. We climbed the Grand Tetons. And one of the last 10 days though, was a horse and mule pack train through the thoroughfare of Yellowstone. My family came to the United States. My grandmother did. Um, my mother and ha was one of uh, nine siblings. Uh, she was born in the United States. It was instilled in our family early on uh, that our country was great and that we had an obligation to serve. I spent a combined of 20 years in the government service. I spent 14 of it in the United States Army working in the intelligence community. So at the end of the ride, we gave the horses back and we were driving out the back uh, gate of Yellowstone to Driggs, Idaho, and we saw a little sign on the road that said free tours and tastings, craft distillery this way. We're men of rugged pleasure and leisure. It's time to, you know, get a sip and, and regale our, you know, survival of our days in Yellowstone. Our family as immigrants uh, believed in, in freedom. Uh, we came here as oppressed people and uh, the special forces just appealed to me because of the motto of free the oppressed. And we get in there, it's just a real small kind of bar, and uh, the wife comes out and says welcome and starts you know, talking about their brand. And about vodka, and about rye vodka versus weeded vodka, about potato vodka, potato flake vodka, right? All of these things you didn't know about. And she would you know, pour us little samples of each, and you're trying to smell and taste you know, which is, you know, highly refined vodka and everything. So it's just a fascinating kind of interaction, right? I served as a young man. I got out, uh, had a business career, but I've served, continue to serve in my community uh, as a good citizen. And the, the, I got a great imprint, great lesson from the World War II generation. Um, as I close in on 60 here, uh, I, I really respected their dedication when, when the world called and what it meant to our family in particular. And then the husband comes out and says, hey, you wanna see the stills? So we're like, oh, okay, well, let's go back where the, the elves make the cookies. And he walked us through the process and it was just interesting to see you know, how the journey of a grain became finally a product to drink. If you think about what truly is American around the world, if you, in any strange part of the world, they're gonna say Harley Davidson, 
Coca-Cola, the Wild West. Uh, they're gonna name iconic things about America. Well, one of those iconic things is bourbon. So then we said, well, you know what? Let's Google the next craft distillery. So we checked out of the house there in Yellowstone and we went to one in Colorado. Then we went to one in New Mexico. Then we went to one in Texas, right? We came all the way back down to Tampa, Florida. It took us about three weeks. And then that's when uh, John's mom said, you drunks need a hobby, right? Because that's all we were doing is showing pictures of us learning how to make whiskey or learning how, you know, our new favorite uh, bourbon or this type of rye. And everybody kind of took their angle, just like a special forces team, right? Coco's business mind started to kick in, right? I make something, I sell it for profit. Elizabeth, who spent 20 years in the perfume and skincare industry, looked at everything about the label, the bottle, the cost of goods, right? The texture of the label, the cork style, all of this. So everybody started, you know, digging more and you, you know, read more and we were trading books left and right. And so now when we got back, we were sharing the story with our friends we had all served with. And they're like, well, I want to go on the next adventure, right? We're like, well, let's go to Scotland. So it became this mini vacation, but it came the study of, of the art of whiskey. The hydrator. It, it really began the process of actually turning on the boilers heating up the stills, you know, mashing in the grains, you know, making a run, fermenting a run, you know, bottling a line, and just the details that went into producing a good scotch. So we came back home and, and we told everybody, everybody was fascinated. We were kind of, you know, starting to explore the business side of the idea. And somebody said, well, what's the difference between Irish whiskey and scotch? Well, we didn't know. So guess what we did? We went to Ireland, we went to Teeling, and it was a brand new facility. The Teeling brothers had just sold their company, so Coco immediately was asking them about the transaction, the financials, the startup, the money. Elizabeth, you know, it was a brand new brand being started. What's your bottle, what's your label, what's your marketing campaign? So you start seeing us kind of perfect our business plan while at the same time making it. It was just a clear vision from day one, um, and that was exciting. I knew, um, I knew that I wanted a metal label. I wanted that metal label too. I felt that it really tied into who we are uh, and the personality of who we are. Coming out of Kentucky, uh, I learned a lot about bourbon. I love the history of it and I love the fact that it's mechanical. Everything from comes from the ground, the soil, uh, grows the, the corn and the grains. The trees that make our barrels come from the ground over 80 years. It takes a long time to, uh, to then the cooper takes that and he, he makes the, uh, makes the uh, barrel staves, they dry. It just, there's nothing but time involved in this. It's a long journey to even get to the point where you're making your own glass and labels and putting this juice into, into this beautiful bottle. And we realized as we looked for a place to build here in Florida, that Florida was gonna to be too hot for bourbon. We wanted to build a distillery to make bourbon, but we also wanted to build a distillery here in St. Pete, Florida. That's where we're from. Here, we would make rums, vodkas, and gins. Beautiful expressions, you know, different botanicals for our gins. We would make different types of vodkas. And of course, it's Florida, everybody's a pirate. You gotta make rum. But we knew that to be successful, you had to make bourbon, America's product. The whole world knows bourbon. But 
Florida is a little too hot to age it. So we found a partnership in Ohio and we started flying up once a month and making about 250 to 500 barrels at a time. As you're discovering, you know, your flavor profile, your mash bills, right? And, and it's your tastes, you know, you drink a lot. And it's the fun part about research, right? Is pulling up to a bar and talking to a bartender and saying, hey, what is, what is, which ones do you like? Well, I like Bullet, right? I like Templeton Rye. Well, why do you like those? Well, it's because of complex flavors. Well, let me try them. So you get to study and drink a lot and you get to hear from bartenders. They're their first line that usually introduces somebody to a brand and you get to start tasting and doing notes and you ask the bartender, well, why do you use rye in, in a lot of your mixed drinks? Well, rye comes out, you know, it's not too uh, sweet for the drink. And so you start to learn the business side of it as well. Then as a group of people, we had a blank canvas of what we wanted to drink. We found ourselves drinking more and more weeded bourbons. So if you think Pappy is a very popular weeded bourbon, if you think of Weller and LaRue, right? And Fitzgerald and some of these other brands, wheat is softer. Rye is charge. You're like, ah, whoosh. You know, a little peppery, a little spicy. Wheat of bourbon is victory, right? You can sit down there neat. You can sip on it. You can enjoy it. The wives actually liked weeded bourbon better because as ladies, they weren't used to, you know, drinking a lot of whiskeys right, a lot of bourbons. So they love their wine, they love their mixed drink like most ladies do, but we found out when they tried wheat bourbon, they would actually enjoy it more and we could enjoy it together. So we decided on two kind of goalposts, a, a rye bourbon and a weeded bourbon. I smelled all of these and that was, that's the winner. That's the winner. So let's try the first one. Number one, that's nutty there, that's good. This one has a sweetier smell. This one, I'm actually getting a little of both of those, the, the nutty and the sweet. Can you see this color? Some of these seem to have more corn. Vanilla. Almost want to drink these now. <laughs> they smell so good. Distilleries have proprietary yeast blends. Some of these yeasts have been alive for 200, 300 years and, and are propagated and are kept alive and you take a little bit of them and you start your next batch. But this really is under lock and key. This is the distillery's legacy is the yeast strain that they do and it's the most guarded secret of each and every distiller and distillery. Distillation has been around for ages. Distillation is nothing more than taking a liquid and converting it into a vapor and back into a liquid. But for bourbon, 100% of the color and 70% of the taste and flavor comes from the barrel. It's the most important part. You see a lot of younger brands try to engineer it where they'll put oak staves in it and speed up that process. But for us, we didn't want to do it, right? And that's where you have a lot of young companies have a hard time getting to their fourth year. That's why they make a vodka or a gin, right, or a rum to pay the bills until their bourbon comes along and ages in. So when I talk to people about bourbon, that product took 110 years to get to the table most times. And it's the most American product you can get. It's the most recycled, right? It's wood. There's no additives. It's all a natural process. And 
you know, at the end, you just have to admire it. Out of 60 barrels, we pulled out 20 randomly, and uh, we picked eight. One, four, six, eight, 11, 15, 18, and 20. Each barrel has given us a, a different taste and a different nose. So when we blend them, it should give us a good complex bourbon. But I need to go back through one more time. To be a bourbon, it can't be distilled any higher than 160 proof, right? If you go higher than that, it becomes a neutral grain spirit like a vodka. Then you finally put it in a barrel, but you have to proof it down. So you have to proof it down as first time you, you add water, basically distilled water to it, and it can't be any higher than 125 proof going into the barrel. Now, once again, distilleries do it anywhere between 125 to 120 to 110 proof. And that's another secret, right, is exactly what proof do you put it in at the barrel. Then it ages. Even though that as Green Berets, we are very good at operations, we are very good at coordinating things, very good at, at, at adapting to a situation that we, we you know, it, it was a, we were problem solving. So as we transition now into the business world, guess what, same thing. One aspect about us as a group of friends and our brand is, you know, as veterans, you miss that sense of adventure, right? Now you're older, you, you could spend all day long reminiscing your tales on the battlefield, right? But those will never come back again. And what we found for us is every year we, we wanted to take an adventure, but now with our families. Last year was the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And I myself had never been to France. I haven't been there. And some other friends were like, oh, you gotta go, it's beautiful. Then we dig in a little more and it was the 75th anniversary. Oh, okay, you know, it's gonna be a good celebration. Then somebody said, well, you know they have reenactment and you can go and you could help storm the beach. We're like, eh, I don't know if I want to storm the beach. Or like, then they had this big airborne reenactment. And we're like, airborne? Jump out of planes again? Palatka, Florida, and we're going to jump out of that aircraft today, a Kodiak, with our brothers in preparation of D-Day, 75th anniversary. Rangers lead the way. So this year is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. On June 5th, uh, we'll be loading up in a C-47 Douglas aircraft and uh, we will be jumping into France. We actually need to do a training, what we call a bar, and it's a basic airborne refresher. A lot of us who are old and decrepit have not jumped for at least 5 to 20 years. You're going to use a parachute? It's a sign of weakness, but I'm going to do it today. <laughs> A little grayer, a little bigger. Yes, a little older. Twice as mean. All right, let's roll.
Whiskey and World War II go hand in hand. Pappy Van Winkle and Bullet Bourbon were all World War II vets that came home. They went back to the distilleries and they really changed the face of American bourbon forever. We're bringing uh, American freedom to France once again. American Freedom Distillery, Four Soldier Bourbon. Bourbon actually comes from a dynasty in France. You had Bourbon Street in New Orleans. You had Bourbon County in Kentucky. And it's rumored that bourbon actually started in Bourbon County and that's where the name came from. It's a really special time being over here because it's the 75th anniversary of D-Day. A lot of the guys aren't gonna be around for the next 100th one. So uh, it's very special to us to actually be over here and be a part of it. That's why this juice that we have developed and produced means so much to us. It just, it's not just bourbon, it's a life, a commitment, a sacrifice, something that we honor and we will honor until the day we die. pre-jump and equipment, equipment inspection. We're going to get a briefing and we're going to do a little bit of training and we're going to get parachutes and then we're going to show up at some ungodly hour tomorrow morning. Everything in the military is called hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. <laughs> All right, we'll catch up to you in a couple hours and see if you're still sitting here. Yeah, we will be. <laughs> started to hit you as everybody was gathering loosely around the hangar. It's like, we are gonna do this. Mm. Okay, let's start doing uh, pre-jump training. Everybody gets in one big circle. We're about to jump out mm. of a plane over Caritan, France. Mm. And when the old C-47s finally flew in to pick us up, we knew it was time to jump. That emotion to be in the aircraft, stand in the door, and look mm. out over the French countryside. Finally, jump out into the wind. I was second last out the door, and so I had this beautiful, beautiful view. What I had in front of me are all the other parachutes that are coming down. And it was about that time that you think to yourself, wow, how amazing is it to be here? And you just do parachute fall, you jump up, woo! You probably heard of, you know, 20 other woos. <laughs> We rolled everything up, we all met kind of in the center, and then we walked out, and everybody starts clapping. And that's the first time you really get to see the size of the crowds. Man, what an honor. What an honor. Coming down, looking down on French soil, knowing the boys did the same thing, it was, uh, Special.
Welcome back to Good Day Atlanta. Every American adult knows exactly where they were the terrible morning of September 11th, 2001. But until recently, only a handful knew about the extraordinary events that unfolded in the immediate aftermath involving 12 brave members of the U.S. Army's Green Berets. But now the story of these brave men is being brought to the big screen in the new action. So in about 2017, uh, we had made, uh, somebody approached us and we'd made an initial documentary to tell the story of Horse Soldier called Legion of Brothers. And it was the first time we really shared our experience on the military side, so much so that our families got to hear the story. Because when you're soldiers, you don't spend time talking to your son about the wartime, right? So you could see a picture of us when we're 32 and a picture of us now than when we're 48 and you could see what time's done to us, right? And it went to Sundance. It was a fun kind of adventure. And then about 2008, we caught wind that they were going to make a movie off the book Horse Soldiers. It's like, okay. And then we heard that they're filming this movie based on a book called Horse Soldiers. Okay, well, what horse soldiers are they talking to? And it wasn't uh, probably midway through filming that one of the actors reached out to Mark and Bob. And what had happened is, is in the book, it's all fake names, right? It's Mitch Nelson, it's Hal Spencer, it's nobody's real names. So it was the actors that said, where are the real guys? They had actually had Navy SEAL advisors on there. So the book was sort of complete, and then you add, you know, a different kind of mindset and culture being advisors, and it was the actors that said, hey, I need to develop my character a little more. Why don't we have access to these people? So on, you know, it was a week later that they invited Mark and Bob out. They went out on a Friday, and then they were told uh, they're no longer needed on Sunday. And really, that was the only amount of participation that uh, the, the team had with the movie. So fast forward, it's like, okay, you know, screw you and the horse you didn't ride in on anyways. But then the uh, Warner Brothers had started promoting the film and they wanted a couple of the horse soldiers to go with the actors on Good Morning America and Fox and Friends and all this stuff. And it was like, eh, no, not really interested. Then the command started saying, hey, there hasn't been a Green Beret movie in a while. Will you please participate? It's like, eh, probably not. And then it was actually our Scottish distiller that called up and said, you guys are idiots. You're trying to create a brand. You've got a Hollywood movie coming out. You know, you, you need to seriously consider, you know, getting your name out there. And we're like, well, it's about the movie, movie, not the brand. And he's like, it doesn't matter what they ask you. All you do is talk about the brand. So lo and behold, it come time to tour around and talk about the movie. And it would be like, yeah, Horse Soldier Bourbon. It's delicious. It's yummy. I'm Tyler Garner, a distiller at American Freedom Distillery, and today we're bottling bourbon. Well, come on, take a look. So as you notice, coming into the bottling process, we've got a large hose from our tank hooked up here running in. Runs over to the filling station. We've got Bob and Wobby here putting labels on. Hi, camera. How you doing? Hello. Let's come over and check out what we got going on. So Mark and Hunter, they've tuned this machine so it fills the same pour on every bottle. Of the tune. So you take the bottles, put them on the table, 
goes over here, Hunter then places the fill bottle over to the table. Then it comes over here to the, the bottling jig that we handmade to get this stuff done. So these first round bottles are actually all hand bottled by us. Wooby uh, does an amazing job of getting them just perfect. So if they're a little bit off, it's probably Bob or myself who've done them. Hey, <laughs> that. All right, so after the uh, labeling process, we then bring it over here for the final stages of labeling, putting the necktie on the bottle. So the next stage after we put the necktie on is we bring it over here to the shrink wrap station to seal the bottle closed. The thing about bourbon, it takes years upon years to age, right? You can't microwave a bourbon. So we had started this probably back in 2015, and now you're talking 2019. We were right on the edge of our aged bourbon. And so we were only gonna release maybe a thousand bottles. And lo and behold, the movie comes out. The movie was interesting. Uh, it gave us some notoriety, but people, you know, wanted to hear from us and talk to us and buy a bottle. Say, hey, I met them. And we sold out in that thousand uh, cases in the first month. And so we had to scramble then and say, all right, we need to, you know, step up our production. We need to reevaluate um, our distribution. And, you know, to date, you know, we're up to well over 20,000 cases and we're growing into multiple states. So we've learned from that experience and everywhere we traveled, you really need three things in the bourbon industry and the spirits industry. Number one, it has to taste good. If it doesn't taste good, they'll buy one bottle and that'll be it. Now let's taste. Oh my God. That is amazing. You can't make an ugly face drinking that. There's no way. There's no way. It doesn't matter what the celebrity background is or how catchy your slogans are or anything. If it sucks, it sucks, right? It has to taste good. Number two, it actually has to look good. And as the wives say, and Elizabeth, it has to be bar jewelry, right? You've got to put it on your bar. And if you think about a bar when you go out at night and you look there, you've got 500 labels staring at you. And how does the consumer decide? And if you look at a Jack Daniels bottle, you could be half blind, but you could still recognize it's Jack Daniels. The same thing with Crown, right? The same thing with Woodsford. So we knew that we need to have distinctive um, and great packaging and labeling. And that's where the bottle design came from. Now, the label itself is a metal label, right? METL is kind of this military term for tough, right? You know, the internal metal that one possesses. The shoulders are broad, just like the weight of the nation we carried. All of this came through Elizabeth just listening to us and her design and her background. Uh, we have a hatchet and arrow on the front for the rangers and special forces it's also very pioneering and frontierish right our country was forged that way by brave men and women that went into the unknown uh, we have a cork nothing's more distinctive than popping that cork right and you look for that sound um, so there's a lot of hidden features it needed to be a little rough and tumble cowboy which I also, I also think that speaks to bourbon itself. 
Um, and I think that it needed to be iconic. Like it had to have a, a feeling of, of um, a strong presence. To be distinctive like the other brands is your bottle has to be unique. For your bottle to be unique, you have to have your own bottle mold that forms it. And what we soon come to realize is those bottle molds were very, very expensive, almost up to $60,000 a piece. Not only did you need one, you needed about seven. You need a, a line's worth and you need a few for spares in case one cracks, right? And they have to take it off the line. And as a young company at the time, we didn't have the money for it. And we didn't want to buy glass from China or Mexico and all these other locations because they all look the same, right? So if you're a new craft brand, you get the same round bottle and you may stick a different label on it. But if you look at a bar, there are 20 brands that look exactly the same. And plus, we didn't want to buy from China. So we went to the glass company, Anchor Glass, and we went through the whole process on how glass is made because we love it, right? I mean, who doesn't love, you know, making things? And at the end, we got in a conversation about the type of steel that is used because of the tremendous amount of heat and pressure. And they told us, and we thought to ourselves, and I looked over at Mark and Bob, and I go, wasn't that the World Trade Center steel? Because we had buried pieces throughout the battlefield. And he goes, I think it is. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to call some of the guys at the Port Authority who are in charge of construction. I'm going to ask them. So at the end of the meeting, I said, hey, if I were to get you the steel, could I get a discount? right? Is that the most expensive piece of this bottle mold? Maybe we can get a discount. They said, whatever. You know, you, you'll never get that kind of steel. That's why it costs so much. We can get it. And I said, well, okay. So a week later, I gave him a call back and said, I have 500 pounds of whatever grade steel that you needed, but it's from the World Trade Center and it's recovered. Can you make that into our bottle molds? And they said, well, let me call the foundry. Sure enough, they called back and said, we would be delighted to have it. So it actually went to some of the same foundries that created the World Trade Center back in the 60s in West Virginia. And it was melted down and it was recast into the bottle molds. Then it had to be laser cut into the final design. And at the end, uh, our bottle, the molds that form the glass, right, are from recovered World Trade Center steel. So if you look at the bottom of the label, it says forged in fire, right, just like we had been. And so we didn't do it as a marketing ploy, right? As some kind of gimmick. It was just Green Berets being clever and thinking, you know, how can we save resources and how can we apply friendships? Then the final one lesson out of all the three lessons, we had to have enough bourbon. If you start selling your brand and your brand becomes popular, then all of a sudden you run out of bourbon, you get delisted. They'll take you off the shelves. Retailers want to sell. They don't want an empty space on on the shelf right the distributor wants to know that you have enough supplies that if they're going to take the time to make your brand successful as well that you could supply it and that's where you got to get serious and we had to really up our production so much so that we are about ready to build a three million gallon capacity facility in kentucky we're no longer we're well beyond the original 1.5 million gallons but you know, it's an investment in the future. Bourbon needs to sleep. So you can't rush mother nature and you can't cheat father time when it comes to bourbon. At the end of the day, you have to decide what your true north is, what it is that you're trying to create. 
And for us, we want to combine that agricultural pace, the art and science of what we bring, the modern history, with a culture and community that speaks about the values we share. We're trying to spend the rest of our lives on a quiet place, doing something we love together. And I think this, is, this fits that bill for us. Kentucky is the home of bourbon, um, natural limestone waters. You know, so much of this terrain and history of bourbon and whiskey itself from America comes from Kentucky, and we figure that this is a place we need to be. It just feels right. It feels natural and right to be here. Horses, bourbon, the beautiful hills, the Cumberland River. Somerset has so much culture and, and shared values that when we first showed up here, you know, we just fell in love with the place, especially the downtown area and the rural areas. Everybody was so warm and inviting. Downtown city of Somerset is America. There's nothing about this place that doesn't say you're home. Many of us spent decades living here at Fort Campbell, Louisville, uh, throughout the great Commonwealth of Kentucky. On 9-11, my Special Forces teammates were doing a night training mission on the Cumberland River. Our children were born here, they were raised here. We had family and friends here. We went off to serve and, and travel the world and have retired. So it just seems natural that we come home here. We've been discussing this for so many years, how we're going to end up and where we're going to end up. We are so pleased and happy to announce that we're coming home to our old Kentucky home, to the Commonwealth of Kentucky, to Somerset, to the great people of Pulaski County, where we're going to make bourbon and continue to make history. A group of friends that serve together is building a brand, right? And the hardest part about this is trying to separate your past from your present. You know, everybody, because of the movie, wants to hear the war story part. And we really don't have any interest of that, right? The war story part. We're fascinated about the bourbon part. And we'll get a group of crowd together and we'll do a whiskey and war stories and we'll talk about the Mujahideen fighters and, you know, facing uncertainty and winning, clutching, you know, defeat into victory. But then we'll talk about the American journey, and that's where you get people today, right? There's not a lot of good stories out there that remind people that this is still America. You could start with absolutely nothing, right? Just you and a group of friends, and you scratch together some resources, and you build something, right? And we built a bourbon brand. All along the way, people laughed at us. They thought we were silly and stupid, and it was just a you know a hobby, and we can't make it. Uh, There's a lot of other brands were like, you don't have it in you. You know, you're not part of 200 years of heritage. You know, how could you possibly do this? We had marketing companies from Madison Avenue say, you know, you'll never get your brand right unless you hire us and pay us the money. We're brand builders, and we went through all of that kind of fearlessly, right? We didn't know that we didn't know anything which is the best way. But we were tenacious, right? And as a Green Beret team, you forget how intelligent, right? And how passionate and how entrepreneurial we were as a group of friends. It was the discipline of not giving up on it. Because a lot of people try to steer us to cheaper, to easier, to faster. And that wasn't part of the vision. It's the story of America. And that's what, you know, we hope as we build this 
Kentucky facility and people come see us, they'll see, you know, what America built, right? Not what an investment group built, right? Not what a uh, publicly traded company had bought into. It's what a group of Americans who served, just like our grandfathers from World War II, came home and they built America again. So hopefully that's what our legacy is, is a brand, number one, for our family and kids, but number two is remind people that, you know, the American dream is still out there and it's achievable. The towers had fell when I was in high school and uh, I waited a year, made up my mind, and then went in. I was uh, one of the original soldiers that went in on the early days after the 9-11 attacks. Every bottle that's going to go through that mold will have been touched by World Trade Center steel. As we say, kind of forged in fire, kind of like we have been throughout our careers. It makes it so much more important for us, so much more real for us, so much more of an honor for us. This is the American dream. I mean, no ifs, ands, or buts. We've got our bottle molds made out of ground zero steel. We've got bourbon made by the guys that were on horseback over in Afghanistan. With the statue of the horse soldiers in New York at Ground Zero, we, we all feel kind of like we're connected to it. Each one of these bottles is its own little memorial. All good journeys have a beginning, middle, end. They're based on history. Our story is based in history. Um, we continue to make history and we continue to be part of history.